nice spin back here. It's a bit weird. Um, but I am just going to share, yeah, a little bit about my story um, very briefly and then um, a little bit about what we do at Open. Um, kind of leading in then to what Jenny's going to be talking to us um, about from Scripture today. Um, so as um, a couple of people have said already today, I have um, I've grown up in MCF um, and um, I think life often doesn't take us where we think it's going to take us. Um, and I think also that decisions and choices that we make um, can somebody, sometimes be such a gift um, of grace to bring us to where we need to be. Um, and yeah, so throughout, throughout my teenage years, MCF, through school, you know, university, into my work in life as a teacher, many of you know I teach French um, part-time and then I do open um, part-time as well. So um, throughout my work in life, um, I have been fully involved in church um, and have had a relationship with Jesus from, from a young age. Um, and due to several um, poor choices that I made, um, I found myself at 30 um, pregnant. And um, I think when we talk about crisis pregnancy, I think we think of, you know, 16-year-olds who are at GCSEs in school, you know, um, that is our crisis pregnancy situation. But, you know, this affects, um, and as Jenny um, knows from all her years of work here and um, through the, the years of work that I've done um, with crisis pregnancy as well, it's all sorts of people in different situations. Um, and I think it's really important and to remember that we can't box things in. Um, but yeah, just to give a little bit of my story then and then how I came to work um, with Open. Um, so I... Um, yeah, at 30, I found myself pregnant um, with Rosie May, and um, I, yes, one more second, sorry. Um, and I think as well, um, it was that journey, sorry, there we go, um, it was that that started my journey really um, into where I am um, at the minute. Um, and Rosie May was born um, just before COVID, um, so she was born in 2019, the end of the summer. And COVID hit, well, as we know, it hit um, kind of around 2020. And um, there were a lot of nights spent sitting in the apartment um, that we were living in, kind of not really doing very much like everybody. Um, and I remember uh, thinking just out of the blue, um, you know, I'm not going to let this go to waste. Like, I can't let what um, has happened in my circumstances um, kind of just just go into nothing and end up down a path um, that I knew I didn't want to end up down. So I remember that evening, um, I um, was just thinking and I started Googling um, crisis pregnancy organisations. Um, and from there, I started volunteering with Crisis Pregnancy Helpline, um, which is a UK-wide um, helpline that offers a non-directive space for people to talk about um, their crisis pregnancy um, or their abortion experiences and just to be listened to. And I always think that um, life events and crises that we wouldn't necessarily have written into our own story um, can be such an act of God's grace to bring us back to where we need to be. Um, and I think it's what we do with those experiences and it's not necessarily what happens to us um, because big or small and our, our choices have different consequences um, depending on what the choices that we make. But I think it's what we do with those choices that actually um, directs the course of our life. Um, and um, I just, that evening when I was Googling that, I, I just thought, you know, God had been asking me to make a decision, you know, do you follow me and give me the, give the, let me give you the abundance of life that I offer, or do you kind of take this little bit of life that you've got? Um, and it was on that evening, I was like, no, you know, you make a decision, you don't, you don't have your foot, one foot in one cap, one foot in the other, because it doesn't work. Um, and then I, so I started doing some work with pregnancy crisis helplines. I was just doing a couple of shifts a week um, with them. And um, it was through the, the post-abortion conversations that I had um, with ladies, um, mostly ladies on the phone, and just the pain and the heartbreak behind, um, you know, the decisions and the emotions that come after the decision that they had made that made me um, undertake some more training um, in that area. Um, and then, so I, I've undergone a few months of training in that, and then um, I'm so privileged to be working with Jenny um, in Open. Um, and I'm just going to give, as I say briefly, a little overview of what we do at Open. Um, so Open is an initiative of CARE. Um, so I know some of you have probably heard of CARE, Christian um, Access, 
Action Research and Education. Um, it's a UK-wide charity, a very well-respected charity, um, founded about 40 years ago. Um, and they aim to bring the Christian voice into the public, uh, public square in areas of, you know, start of life, end of life, um, gambling, things like that. Um, so Open is an initiative of care. And we, I suppose, are the, the pastoral care um, side of that. We're not there to campaign or enlist volunteers. We're there to provide the support um, that, that women so much need. Um, in a crisis pregnancy situation or following baby loss, be that through um, post-abortion um, struggles or uh, post-miscarriage. Um, and we provide several things that can hopefully help to equip and support um, churches. So we do pastoral training events. We actually had a really great day yesterday um, in Glen Abbey Church in Newton Abbey. Um, we have 40 pastoral leaders there um, and just did a, did a session from 9 till 2 um, on um, how can we offer support to those who have suffered miscarriage. Um, and then into um, what can we do to support those in crisis pregnancy and then um, anybody who has experienced abortion um, and how do we help them to process those really complex emotions that come up after that. Um, we also offer retreats, which I know Jenny is going to allude to, so I'll not say too much, but we offer um, miscarriage retreats for a day um, where ladies can come and just have a chance to work through a healing program um, to help them process those emotions and also a weekend <coughs> retreat um, post-abortion, which again, we follow a set program um, that allows um, women to, um, again, just to process uh, what has happened. Um, so I guess at Open, we are there to, to support churches in any way that we can. Um, and it's... Um, yeah, it's our privilege to go around and just to try and see where in, in churches can we best provide them with the, the support, the resources and the training that we need um, so much to offer um, the support to those women. Because I think these areas um, in, of crisis pregnancy and, and of abortion aren't, you know, they aren't spoken about in church. Again, I'm not going to say um, Jenny Sander, but we don't talk about them and there's the silence that surrounds them. Um, and sometimes we don't necessarily know how to deal with them. Um, and it's just having those skills um, to be able to deal with them. Um, and I think I always say that um, the church I was going to um, at the time when I found out I was pregnant, um, I just I have such a positive experience um, of how they acted. And um, it must have been really difficult for them to have somebody who was essentially in um, a kind of a leadership capacity in an area of their church to find themselves in this position. But they acted with such grace and love, but also with truth as well. And I think it was after that I was just so convinced of the need for the church to kind of rally around and have the support for these women because these situations are there. It's just that, um, unfortunately, uh, we find it really hard to talk about them. Um, so I'm going to remove myself and this child um, from here. And um, it's, so, it's so lovely to have Jenny. Jenny's been over for the weekend. She's been over since Friday. Um, and it's so, been so lovely to have her over um, as um, someone who founded Open and who has been doing this work for so many years. Um, and I know that you'll, um, yeah, you'll take a lot away from what she has to say to us. So thank you, Jenny. Hey, good morning, everyone. Really lovely to be here. Lovely to see some faces, some um, Roger and Abigail, and I was at Bible College with them. I was the old lady in the college and they, <laughs> uh, just a few years ago, and, and, and other familiar faces. But so lovely to be here, and thank you so much uh, for, for making us so welcome and for being willing. Not, church, not all churches would do this, but being willing and open for us to come um, and share this message that Rebecca has just spoken about um, really um, so well. Now, I'm a bit of a technophobe, so I hope this is going to, um, hang on, work, should do, or oh, it went off again. Okay, yay, okay. <laughs> so I'm going to share a little bit about open, but actually I'm going to bring a message from the word as well this morning, which I hope will be relevant to all of us here, but just talking about God's grace and God's love and, uh, and God's forgiveness um, this morning. So just a little bit about me. Um, as Rebecca said, I've been, I'm so old, I've been many years involved in this work, actually over 35 years. Um, I've been involved in working with those who have faced a crisis pregnancy 
or maybe struggling following an experience of pregnancy loss in whatever situation that would be. Uh, before that, I worked as um, a social worker, local community uh, social worker, until I met and married my husband, Derek. Um, now, Derek was a Baptist pastor, which, you know, when you marry a Baptist pastor already, it's a bit of a challenge, um, you know, marrying the pastor. Um, that was a bit of a challenge. But an even greater challenge, actually, was the fact that he was a widower um, and, his, and he had five young children. Um, if I were doing a, ch a ladies' talk, I would be putting up a picture of Julie Andrews coming over the hill, singing, <laughs> the hills are alive with the sound of music, because really that was me, but I must not digress too much this morning. Um, he was a widow, he had five children, and then we had twins. Um, so we started, having married a man with five children, we then started doing it in twos. <laughs> and then we had um, uh, our, bit, our youngest daughter, um, so it was interesting. I just thought you might like to see a picture. So here are the five children, from uh, shortest to tallest. They look a right ragtag bunch there. They, this was one Christmas Eve. We just all got in the car, and we just went all down to Cardiff, actually. Um, and there they are. The one on the end, who is in the pink jumper and shivering, looked like she was going to freeze to death. This was Christmas Eve. Um, she is now actually director of Pregnancy Centres Network all over the UK. It's such a wonderful thing for me, sort of passing on the baton and a chip off the old block. She has lived with this all her life, bless her. Um, but I just want you to know they've survived. They look there as if they might not have. And then, oh, what is going on? I, I, there they are. I don't know what I'm doing with this. <laughs> okay, so this was actually well over 10 years ago. They did survive. And ago, again, we go from shortest to tallest, but it kind of changed as they, as they grew up. Um, so those are our children. So life has been very interesting. Um, and I often say that when I met Derek, I actually exchanged community social work for residential childcare at that point, because <laughs> that's a little bit um, of what it felt uh, at that time. So open, I have for over 20 years, Derek and I led churches um, in South Wales and then in Lincolnshire, which is where I come from, um, beautiful county of Lincolnshire, until very sadly, my lovely husband, he died very suddenly of a heart attack, totally out of the blue, um, and died on the spot just over 15 years ago now. So in that space of really two or three minutes, my life totally changed. <laughs> um, and since then, um, I have been involved with working with OPEN and as a consultant for care um, because I was challenged with the fact that, yes, we need to be in the community and as part of the ministry of our church, we ran a pregnancy advice centre. But also God challenged me at this time in my life that we need to be engaged, engaging with churches as well. As Rebecca has said, not to campaign, not to get volunteers, not to raise money, none of that, but to reach out to churches um, to challenge them to make their churches environments where those who have experienced these things can share about it without fear of being judged. Um, and so I've just felt is, um, that we need to engage with churches on this issue. And from then, open, um, we developed um, open. We have a great website. I'm not going to talk too much more, actually, about Open um, just now, but we have a great website. We have some leaflets out there. Please do have a look and do be in touch. It's so wonderful. There's such a lot of interest in Northern Ireland at the moment in this. We're so encouraged, which is why we now have our wonderful Northern Ireland consultant. And so we're just excited to see what God's going to do over here, actually. It's just really, um, really good. Um, I'd like us this morning to think... This is a very complex topic, and I'm not going to be speaking specifically on the topics. Um, but I'd like us to think how we as Christ followers can create within our churches um, that, and our circle of friends and our acquaintances. You know, this isn't an issue that's just out there. It's also an issue that's in here and in our lives, in our families. Um, and how can we create that environment where we can share about these things? Now, I love stories. Poor Rebecca, she probably got, when I go she'll, home, she'll think she's gone deaf. Um, I've talked so much, and I've got lots of stories. Uh, and I love stories. And I just want to share with you this morning one of my favourite stories. Some of you might know the writer John Ortberg. If any of you have read his books, just a wonderful writer. And he shares the story, um, actually written a long time ago now, uh, when he and his wife made a momentous decision. And he, sh he calls this story The Mauve Sofa. He says, some years ago, we traded in my old Volkswagen Super Beetle for our first piece of new furniture, a mauve sofa. It was actually the bright pink colour of Beptopismal, which is why we have this picture. But because it represented to us a substantial investment, we thought mauve sounded better. 
The man at the furniture store warned us not to get rid of it when he found out we had small children. You don't want a mauve sofa, he said. Get one the colour of dirt. <laughs> but we had the naive optimism of young parenthood. We know how to handle our children, he said. We said, give us the mauve sofa. From that moment all, we all clearly knew the number one rule in the house. Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't play around the mauve sofa. Don't eat on, breathe on, look at, or even think about the mauve sofa. Remember the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden? On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit. But upon this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit. For in the day you sit thereupon, you shall surely die. <laughs> and then came the fall. One day there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. That's jam in English. So my wife, who had chosen the sofa and absolutely adored it, uh, she lined everybody up in front of the sofa, our three children, Laura, age four, Mallory, two, and Johnny, six months. <laughs> Do you see that, children? She asked. That's a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. The man at the sofa store says it's not coming out, not forever. Do you know how long forever is, children? That's how long we're going to stand here until one of you tells me who put the stain on the mauve sofa. Mallory was the first to break. With trembling lips and tear-filled eyes, she said, Laura did it. <laughs> Don't you love that about kids? <laughs> Laura passionately denied it. Then there was silence for the longest time. No one said a word. I knew the children wouldn't, for they had never seen their mother so upset. I knew they wouldn't, because they knew that if they did, they would spend eternity in the time-out chair. I knew they wouldn't, because I was the one who had put the red jelly stain on the mauve sofa. And I knew I wasn't going to say anything. I figured I would find a safe place to confess, such as a book I was going to write, maybe. <laughs> You know, I love that story. Why am I reading it this morning? The truth is, of course, that we have all stained the sofa. Some of the stains are small and barely noticeable, but some of them bleed through the entire fabric of our lives. They are the stains we regret in the wee cold hours of the night. I'm getting so Irish, we. <laughs> As we lie in bed, staring at the ceiling, wishing we could go back and relive some moments and get things right this time. They may be the stains that if we don't regret, we ought to, and we would if our hearts were working right. All of us will have to log some time in front of the sofa. All of us here, and me especially. You know, this isn't just a modern uh, concept, this stain of sin and and. and things that bleed through all of our lives. Approximately a 1,000 years ago, David, the king and psalmist, he wrote about his need for time in front of the sofa. In Psalm 38, 4, we read, My guilt overwhelms me. It's a burden too heavy to bear. And then in one of my favourite uh, verses in the Bible, I think this is going off, I don't know. Are you able to click at the back? There we go. <laughs> so sorry. Uh, so in, in Isaiah 1.18, we read, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they should be like wool. And I love that approximately 750 years ago, give or take a few, before Christ, God was portrayed as wanting to meet and to reason and to talk with his people, to talk about those things we do which causes us to miss his very best for us. That is kind of my definition of sin. It's when we miss God's very best for us um, in our lives. And this morning, he wants to meet with us 
and to give us a wonderful gift. I just love presents, and I'm going to be talking about the gift of God's love this morning. The assurance that through Jesus, we can know him, and we can be known by him in love eternally. I sometimes wonder how God feels when he gives us free will, and then he sees what we do with it. If we just think of the world today, we've already heard about Israel this morning, then Gaza, all the things that are going on there, Ukraine, all those things that are so close to our hearts. I wonder what God is feeling. Um, I'm sure his heart is breaking as he looks down on our world. And again, this isn't just a modern-day concept. I think of the children of Israel who time and time again rebelled and messed up and wandered away. And yet in another ancient text in Deuteronomy 7, we read, The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you, and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. God gives us the gift of his unfailing love. In fact, he doesn't only give it, he lavishes it. His extravagant love he wants to lavish on us this morning. And this reminded me of a wonderful incident we read about in Luke's Gospel, Um, Again, one of my favourite stories, um, when Jesus received, but he also gave um, this wonderful gift um, of love. So it's from Luke 7, 36 to 50. It's quite a a long reading, but there's no way we can take any of it out. (laughs) So Luke 7, it would be very um, familiar to, to you. Luke writes, then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet away with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, He said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. I love that. (laughs) He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more. Simon answered, I suppose the one who forgave, he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore I tell you, many sins have been forgiven, and that's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man? who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Isn't that just the best story? I, I just love it. In, this t- in the time leading up to this, Jesus had been proclaiming that God loves sinners, a message with which the Pharisees did not agree. They believed that God only cared for righteous people who kept the law. And so this meal at the house of Simon the Pharisee was planned so they could put this young rabbi right. I love that thought we had this morning about just walking with the dust of the rabbi. Just wonderful. During the meal, a woman who was well known as a sinner witnessed along with all who were present 
that Simon had neglected to offer the traditional basic courtesies of hospitality to Jesus. Now, this was a blatant insult to Jesus, who could reasonably at that point left. But Jesus chose to enter and to recline on a couch. The woman came and moistened his feet with her tears and then anointed them with precious oil before drying them with her hair. Now, for this story to make sense, we can assume that the woman would have already known that she would never have reached the standards imposed by the Pharisees. The rabbinical definition of repentance included contrition of heart and confession of the lips and making some kind of compensation. If this woman had asked about compensations for her sins, she would most likely have been told, in your case, not a chance. But she had heard that Jesus ate with sinners, that he proclaimed that God loves sinners, and she had already received the gift of forgiveness, even though she couldn't make compensation for her past. And so she was eager to show her gratitude to this man who had set her free from the shame of her past. Her acts would have shocked the righteous in the room and came at a great cost to her, both financially and socially. Now, in this culture, ladies here this morning, women were seen as inferior to men. Synagogue prayers, I don't know if you know this, and I think it still happens in some synagogues, they began with, Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. <laughs> don't know what anybody here would think about that. The women sat in separate, screened-off sections in the synagogue, and in the temple they were only admitted as far as the court of the Gentiles and the, cart, and the court of women. Mixing socially with women was frowned on, and rabbis taught that men shouldn't talk with a woman in public, not even with their own wives. So just imagine the scene that we have just read about, where this woman comes into the house where the Pharisees were eating, and letting go of her fear and her need for their approval, she made this radical, extravagant <laughs> gift to Jesus. Now, I learnt that the act of unbinding and letting down her hair in public was seen of a woman doing this, was seen by the rabbis as being sexually provocative and could be grounds for divorce and punishment. In fact, in traditional Middle Eastern society, the first time a man saw his bride's hair, hair loose was on their wedding night. And so all in this room, can you imagine, would have been shocked um, by the woman's gesture and they would have understood that she was making a serious pledge of loyalty to Jesus as she came with a, a gift of radical and sacrificial worship. But then notice, too, the radical actions of Jesus in response. I just love that Jesus was so radical in his ministry. Simon and the observers expected Jesus to reject her actions, but he chose to defend her by telling the parable about the two debtors. The message was that those who have been forgiven most love the most. And in this religious community, to be touched by a sinner would entail then having to go through onerous purification rites. But this didn't concern Jesus. He turned toward the woman, and even in doing that, he turned his back on Simon and reproved him strongly for his lack of courtesy and respect, in contrast to the woman who had given this so extravagantly. I think it's significant that by his action, he transferred the hostility of the guest away from the woman and onto himself. And that reminds me so much of what Jesus did on the cross, and it's so lovely taking communion this morning, that he took our sins upon um, himself on the cross and Jesus then again spoke to her, again breaking the rabbinic rules, not the rules of the law, just the rules that the rabbis had written and created. He never broke the rules of the, of the law. And he confirmed that her sins were forgiven, that her faith and obedience would lead her in the path of peace. What a gift he gave to that woman. I was so encouraged, actually, and blessed this morning um, by the choice of song, um, didn't know what I was going to be speaking on this morning, but the, the words of that, of that song that we sang just reminded me of what this, this lady, this woman did 
anointing the feet of Jesus, when we sang, um, Your majesty I can but bow. <laughs> I lay my all before you now in royal robes I don't deserve. That's what she experienced, the robes that she didn't deserve. But we too, we're here in royal robes that we don't deserve and we live to serve God's majesty. So as I said, I know one or two of you here this morning, but the majority, of course, I have never met. I don't know any of you. And knowing what the topic kind of is this morning, I guess there might have been some um, who are slightly um, nervous about what I'm going to say. Um, but there will be some who have come to church carrying a sense of shame, not because of the issues maybe that we have spoken about, but there can be all areas of shame is a huge thing in our society today. And there may be some here this morning carrying a sense of shame, a feeling that if others knew what's gone on in my life or what's going on in my life, they wouldn't invite me to their table. I meet people all the time who feel this, the most unexpected people, actually, people that you sometimes think have got it all together, but carrying um, this sense, sense of shame. And especially I meet women who in the most difficult and horrible circumstances have had to make decisions because they simply felt they had no other choice. I want to say that I believe that the act of abortion is a sin that grieves God's heart. This isn't something I would be saying to a woman who came to me for help, but here as Christ followers this morning, I do believe it grieves God's heart. And the word sounds so harsh, but it is real. But as I said before, I try to explain that by thinking it's actually when we miss God's very best plan for our lives. And I don't think that that is ever part of God's best plan for our lives. But when this, this choice is made, there is a sorrow and a sense of shame which can come with crossing God's boundaries. On our training course yesterday, um, we had a whole session looking at compassion within boundaries. How can we show God's compassion? But within the boundaries um, of God's word and God's best for our lives. And time and time again, we hold post-abortion healing retreat weekends. Time and time again on those retreats, we see the effects of women having crossed their heart instincts, having crossed the boundaries that God has set down in each and every one of us um, in our lives. But I am so glad in the messages this morning and the message that we bring all the time is that God rege redeems the choices that maybe we regret. We all need to come and spend time in front of the sofa. For us as Christ followers, and especially for church leaders, there's always the challenge of walking within the tension of compassion and boundaries, of grace and truth. And that is a fine line that we're walking all the time, I think, as, as people who want to show God's love, but within God's law. Um, John Stott, the wonderful writer and theologian, um, he said, our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth, but our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. And I think that is so true. Sadly, I know that some Christians, like the Pharisees, even though they may be well-meaning, they can add to our shame and make us feel unwelcome. More than once, I have had to apologize to women on behalf of the church, you know, the church universal. Now, I love local church. We spent many years leading local church. I believe in local church. And Rebecca's experience, as she said, shared this morning, was one of totally being received and accepted and supported by it. We do it so well. We have that ethos, don't we, um, of compassion within our churches. But I have more than once had to apologize for the way that some women um, have been treated by the church. Um, I just would like to tell you the story of this lovely friend of mine. Her name is Genevieve. Um, I have the real privilege of going and working quite regularly uh, in a church in Illinois in the States. Um, I was there actually just um, for a month, just at the end of last year. Um, and Genevieve, and while I was there, it's a big, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-everything church. It's just a wonderful church to be in. It's a very big church. Um, but they have um, released me. They've given me. Um, they just totally accept what we're doing within Open. And so when I go there, I hope do some um, post-abortion um, recovery classes um, every week there. And one lady came one time when I was over, and she walked into the room, and she sat down. This was Genevieve. And she said, see, Jenny... I never thought I would ever see this kind of a thing in a church. 
And she shared her story with us, and this was the first time she had ever told anybody this story. Um, she, she's from California originally, and when she was 16, she had an abortion and was taken by her mum, no question about it, taken down to the... the, the what did, did I just say? Yes, she had an abortion. She was, when she found she was pre pregnant, she was taken by her mum to the clinic um, and had an abortion. And although in her heart, and they were from a church background, um, they didn't talk about it anymore, and Genevieve carried on with her life. Um, but when she was in her mid-20s, she met a man and began a relationship with him. She was away from the church at that time, began a relationship with him, and then discovered that he was a very violent man and really wasn't a man that she wanted to be linked to um, for all of her life, but discovered um, that she was pregnant. And so she said, Jenny, I just simply felt I had no choice. I did not want to be linked forever with this man or for him to be involved in my life. Um, and so again, she made that decision to have an abortion. She booked herself into the clinic, didn't tell anyone, her mother, nobody knew about this. And she told me that as she approached the clinic, she knew in her heart that she didn't want to make this decision. She actually did not want to do it, but simply did not know what else she could do. You know, this is without the benefit that we have of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us and speaking to us. She felt she had no choice and she said she got out of the taxi, and as she walked down the, the path to the clinic, she thought, oh, no. And I know this is a sensitive subject, but I'm going to share this. As she walked down the path, at each side of the path, there were people there with banners and with posters, pictures of aborted fetuses, another, another banner saying abortion is murder. Um, and as she walked down that path, somebody gave her a leaflet, and it said on this, if you do this, you will go to hell. And I couldn't believe it. I said, no. She said, Jenny... This is what happened. She already felt absolutely rubbish about herself. She did not want to be doing this. So she walked in, she went into the clinic, she had the abortion, and she had anaesthetic. And when she came round from the general anaesthetic, she was just sobbing. <laughs> and she said a nurse came over to her and said to her, be quiet, you're going to set everybody else off. And she said from, from that moment until she had come into our room, <laughs> she never once cried about her abortion. But she sat there, and as she sat there, I think having a hot drink before she went out on her own, can you imagine what this felt like for her? As she walked out of the clinic, she suddenly felt, oh no, I've got to go back down through that picket line of demonstrators again. And she said to me, that is the image that haunted her for many weeks and months afterwards. I'm going to get a bit wobbly. I always do when I'm sharing this story. And we were there, and she was crying. And she said, I've never told anybody this. Um, and we were all crying as well, as you can imagine. And I just said to her, Genevieve, I just apologize on behalf of those probably, well, of course, they were well-meaning Christians. But I want to apologize. That should not have happened to you. That shouldn't happen to anyone. And then eventually she came to this wonderful city where I go in Illinois, and she came on the group. Genevieve made a decision which in her heart she knew wasn't the right one. And yet she couldn't think what else to do. She needed to hear about God's compassion too, which thankfully she did on our post-abortion healing program, which not only brought her healing, but through this it brought her back into a relationship with Jesus. And, and I've had the privilege of seeing um, pictures of it when I was back over in England. She was baptised with her young daughter. She already had a daughter by this time. Um, and just through this experience came to know the love of God in her life um, and God's forgiveness. And it changed her life. There's a wonderful writer, some of you might know him, and he's a, a neonatal paediatrician, Professor John Wyatt. He's, written, he's very involved with Christian Medical Fellowship, written wonderful books um, and I know him as a friend. He's just a lovely, lovely man. And he wrote, you know, when we speak about abortion, we should speak about it not with hate in our voices, but with tears in our eyes. I think that's so true. There once was a little girl who prayed, oh God, make the bad people good and make the good people nice. <laughs> Anybody here know some good people that aren't actually very nice? I do. And isn't that so true? And God wants us to speak with grace and compassion and in an attractive way that people will come to us for help. Two or three years ago, I was just chatting with a lovely lady. Um, she was very interested in the work of Open, and she's an, a vicar now. She's training to be a vicar. 
Um, and she was, had had two abortions as a teenager. And she said that she was almost incapacita incapacitated afterwards by a deep sense of shame. She's written quite a lot about shame since. And she wrote, talking about opening up this conversation in churches, she wrote, shame operates by forcing us to hide and isolate ourselves from others. Yet when stories are shared, so, I mean, Be Rebecca with Courage this morning has shared her story. You know, it's when women share their stories, that will bring about the changes, I believe, more than all the campaigning and protesting in the world. When women share their stories of how it's affected them, you can't argue with someone's story. But she wrote there, when stories are shared, it's possible to bring compassion, healing, and restoration. Women may feel co more confident in, in uncovering themselves and their hidden shame. It may also be that the wider church stops seeing those who experience abortion as far away and other. Instead, these women are seen as friends and neighbors and family. It's easier to condemn a stranger, much harder to condemn someone you see every week. <laughs> I think that is so true. Or to put it another way, many of you will have heard of the, the writer Brené Brown. She wrote, shame dies when stories are told in safe places. And I just sense this church is so open, the fact that you've had me. I had a wonderful Zoom conversation with John Mark before. I think he was sounding me out, you know, make sure I'd be okay. But it, I'm sure he wasn't. But, you know, I know that this is a very open church and a church full of grace and truth. And this is what our heart, this is what we want for all churches to be places, places where stories can be told in safe places. You know, one in three women in the UK um, will have experienced abortion by the time they are 45. Isn't that a shocking statistic? Of course, that's mainly in England and, and, and Scotland. Um, and there are many women we know, because I've spoken to many of them on a counselling helpline who have come over from Northern Ireland so it is no surprise that at any kind of event when I speak, nearly always there is someone who will come to talk to me to share their story, to say, Jenny, I've experienced this. I don't want you to think that anybody coming up to chat to me afterwards is doing that. <laughs> but it nearly, there's nearly always someone who will come and sometimes have never told anyone uh, and will come and share their story. And because of that, because I speak in churches a lot, we developed our post-abortion healing retreat weekends where we can offer that somebody that comes to share their story, they can come um, and experience God's healing um, and work um, through the emotions that most women um, who have had abortions um, uh, experience. Um, and of course, just to say, um, I haven't got time, I will be running out of time, uh, it affects men too, and we could do a whole session on how abortion affects men. You know, there are fathers as well as mothers in this scenario, so I'm just acknowledging, acknowledging that. So we have this wonderful, these wonderful retreats. They, of all the ministry that I have been involved with, with women's work and with my husband, um, I always say these weekends are the most humbling and enriching and the hugest privilege to take four or five courageous women who come um, and, and work through the, the way that abortion um, has affected them. And so if you know of anyone, please, this is our next one coming up in Enniskillen, and we're hoping to roll these out over, over Northern Ireland. Do please get in touch um, with Rebecca. You know, someone once wrote, if only we would all grieve our sins as much as women who grieve the pain of their abortions. And I see that all the time, the pain and the courage of women who come and, and acknowledge what they have done, that accountability, but seeking God's forgiveness and then thinking, how can I move on with the rest of my life, with all the potential um, that God has, has for me? Many feel a sense of unworthiness. They feel a spiritual separation from God, and we could go on. And yet the good news is this morning, you will have got the message by now, is that Jesus came to bring his gift of healing and restoration and of extravagant love. And actually, he wants to be, whatever our situations, it might not be anything to do with this topic, God wants all of us this morning to know his gift of restoration um, and of extravagant love. I just love the Good News translation, and it's kind of a loose translation, any theological scholars here, I'm sure. Um, but I love this version of this verse in Hebrews where it says, see to it that no one misses out on the grace of God. And that is our vision with open. We don't want anyone to miss out on the grace of God. There's an old hymn, some of you might know it here, we used to sing when I was small a long, long time ago. And that hymn is, Grace, tis a charming sound, 
harmonious to the ear. Heaven with the echo shall resound and all the earth will hear. And this hymn is mentioned in a book called Creating a Prodigal Friendly Church, written by Jeff Lucas. Some of you may have read some of his books, heard him speak. He's a great communicator. And actually, um, I've known him for many years. He was actually at our wedding. Um, so a great friend of ours as well. But in this book, he wrote on to say, God has always created beautiful music through broken people. How desperately the world needs to hear the charming sound that is grace. There's no shortage of harsh music on this planet, but rather a famine of real music. God longs for the lilting melody of his love to be heard, true music to the ear of those who have ears to hear it. One of, uh, I have a very great friend now, one of the ladies who came on one of our first post-abortion healing groups in this church in, in Illinois, where I have the privilege of, of going. Um, she um, went through the group. She'd had an abortion when she was 18. Um, the father was the man who then they married and they're still together now. But because of her family and because of the church, she just could not tell them that she was pregnant out of wedlock, as she would say. She has a very old-fashioned turn of phrases, lady. Um, and she became pregnant, had an abortion. But for so she was in her 50s by the time she came to this group. For all those years had carried actually sorrow. She knew that, and she'd been back to God time and time again to ask for forgiveness. She knew she'd crossed God's boundaries, but also a sense of shame. Outwardly, a very loud, typical loud, I love it a bit, but a typical loud American, very extrovert, but inside carrying this deep sense of shame. And she just worked through this program and really it was incredible. But one day I went out to visit her. She lived in a small town on the outskirts, actually about half an hour away from the city. Um, and as I drove into the, to the town, at the side of the road, there was a huge billboard and on it, it said, abortion stops a beating heart. And as I drove past it, I just suddenly thought, oh my word, Marilyn has never mentioned that. I wonder, they must have just put it up. How is she feeling now, driving past that every time, um, four times a day, every time she passes that sign going in and out of the town? And so when I got to her house, I said, Marilyn, that sign, you know, how are you? She said, Jenny, that sign has been up there for years. And she said, every time I've had to I drive in and out, I either turn the other way or I've had to harden my heart because it feels a bit like salt in my wound. And so we chatted about that. And then when I got back to the office, she emailed me later on and she said, I've been thinking about it, Jenny, and you know that sign you saw that said abortion stops a beating heart. Here is one step further. Yes, abortion stops a beating heart, but who will care for the heart that remains beating but broken? And I want to say this morning, that is us. We want to reach people through grace-filled and winsome ways. God's gift, we're God's gift to a hurting and lost world, and we want to bring them to a heavenly Father who loves them. You know, through my own experiences of grief in my life, and there have been a few, I, I, I didn't mention that before I had my twins, I suffered three miscarriages, um, and the grief of that experience, actually, that, those experiences have shaped my life. <laughs> it began me on this journey of walking with those who've lost babies through whatever and circumstances. I've lost, as you know, my husband, I've lost parents. I have had enough grief in my life. But I have learnt that God reaches broken people through broken people. And we live in a broken world. How we know that right now? And maybe this morning, we might feel a little bit broken this morning. Some of us here might feel a little bit broken. And if that's you, I hope this is okay. I'm going to end by sharing, I'm going to try not to cry, uh, a very personal family story. Now, my youngest daughter, who was that little girl shivering on the end of that row, Alice, um, in, in, um, in 2020, um, she, she's married now, uh, and she, um, they have a son, Thomas. Um, and in 2020, just before, um, she had Thomas. Yeah, let me get my head straight. She, she had a, her son, Thomas. And when she was in labour, I was doing the good mother-in-law thing. I was up near their house about half an hour away, uh, uh, not half, half a mile away, all through the night, I kept waking up. Anybody who's had daughters who've gone into labour, it's just horrible. You almost think you could do it, wish you could do it yourself. It's horrible. And I was waking up thinking, she must have had the baby now. She must have, surely Joe, her husband, would have rung me by now. Eventually, I just thought, um, after about six hours, I'll blow it. I'm going down there. <laughs> and so I went down there, and my son-in-law was so pleased to see me. 
Um, but when I got there, she had had a horrible labour, and in the end, they rushed her down for um, a, a caesarean. And that's so cruel, and if you might, some of you might have ex experienced it, doing all the horrible hard labour and then having a C-section. Um, and so when I arrived, they had just um, brought her around um, from the theatre. And, you know, all these occasions, we've had family weddings, we've had big events, celebrations, um, They've all been really happy occasions, but without Derek there, they've been very bittersweet. And that's still the case whenever we've had that kind of a, uh, a celebration. And this was one of those times. Um, and as I went into the, the recovery room where she was, and I, I looked across, and I looked at her, one of the challenges um, was actually finding the baby. Um, and as I looked across, um, this was Alice, I looked across and I thought, whatever is she wearing? <laughs> that's so strange. Why do they... They give them black, oh, yeah, um, what do you call them, theatre gowns. And I walked over to her, um, found the baby was there, lying against her, her chest there. I said, Alice, what have you got on? And she just said to me, sorry, it's Dad's T-shirt. And she, I had no idea of this, and, and it was just one of those moments I just whipped my phone out and just took this photo. I don't normally do that. And she had packed this with her bag when she went into labour. And she, because... She just wanted something. She wanted her dad, actually, to be there, that sense of Derek. I had no idea she was doing this. So there she'd gone through the whole of labour, wearing Derek's T-shirt. And, you know, as I looked at her, I just had this, this just thought came into my mind and thinking about it afterwards, that wonderful verse, you know, in Psalm 91, where God says, he will cover you with his feather. He will shelter you with his wings. And it was almost like there... Alice felt she had the protection of her father. But for all of us this morning, God wants us to, if you like, to come under the T-shirt. He wants, just like Thomas there, he wants us to feel whatever we have done in our lives, whatever might be going in and on in our lives, whatever sense of shame we might have, he wants us to come and to just lie on his breast and to feel skin to skin close with him because he's our heavenly father. Um, and he loves us. He wants to give us um, his extravagant love this morning. We might be feeling fragile, um, but this morning God longs for us to have joy instead of mourning, to have praise instead of, he of, of heaviness. And that is my prayer for us all today, that we would, go love, we would know God's extravagant love um, in our lives this morning. Perhaps we could pray shortly. And I just want to say, if any of you have been touched or affected by anything I've said this morning, I understand there is a prayer ministry team here. Please do feel free to come and, and be prayed for, um, uh, either as we sing or, or at, at um, the end of the service. And please do come and chat to me if you'd like to chat about opening to Rebecca, of course. Um, but shall we pray? Shall we pray? Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, this morning, we want to thank you for your extravagant love. We thank you, Lord, that you lavish your love upon us this morning. And we, pr we know that each and every one of us, you want us to come skin to skin close with you this morning. That image of the, the lady who shared lying on the floor, actually, you are the one um, that we want. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would come, that you would bring your um, peace. If, if this has touched a raw nerve with anyone, that, Lord, you would just bring your healing and that confidence to know that you love us, that you forgive us, and that this morning we are your sons and daughters. So thank you, Lord, for your extravagant love today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you to Jenny and Rebecca. And if you want to listen back, um, we'll be available on audio. Unfortunately, the live stream didn't work this morning, but uh, let's stand together and let's sing.